You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today, Paul Sinha returns. Uh, he is the it's the longest gap we've had from an initial to a returning guest. You'll remember episode five, I think, was Paul. I've not checked, but I've got a five in my head. Um, and to date, the only uh, guest on the podcast to have been interviewed in their car. Uh, Paul is not in a car. He's at home now, and uh, it has been. Uh, a very challenging and exciting eight years for him. We're going to talk about the mainstreamification uh, of his audience when he went from fringe comedian to celebrity quizzer as the cinnamon on the chase, uh, managing very, very neatly to leverage his passion, his hobby into something that made him famous and I would imagine decently wealthy as well um which is is that the dream of every comedian to do something else perhaps it is um we're also going to talk a little bit about uh how his comedy has changed how that's changed as a re- as a reaction to his audience the people he plays to the people that he hangs out with uh, as he does enjoy having a nice drink with strangers after a gig and which seems as me a valuable as valuable a way as any other to um Uh, to source material and opinions. We're going to get stuck into all of that stuff and then we're also going to talk about how he was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, just after he had been diagnosed himself. Well, just after he had sort of pretty much diagnosed himself. We're going to get into detail on that and talk about how his comedy has changed from political agitation, um, or satire at least, um, to much more personal storytelling. Uh, this is a very COVID unfriendly episode. So with some of them, I, I will try and point out in the intros for future episodes whether or not I consider them COVID safe, which is to say if you are trying to escape. Uh, I mean, forgive me for jumping on a meme here, but if you're trying to escape brackets, gestures vaguely and everything, then um, I will try and make you aware in future episodes of which of them are going to mention the virus and which aren't. This one does. Uh, that's all I think there is 30 minutes of extra content available to members of the Insiders Club including Paul on how he refuses to think about mortality uh, his new style of joke writing on Twitter and the inside story on his performance on Taskmaster and what was going on in his life at that time all available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders but first here's Paul Sinner So where do you want to start, Paul? It's been eight years. This is the longest gap between appearances on the Comedians Comedian podcast of anybody. Eight years. It's been eight years. It was May 2012, and you were guest, I think, number five. Oh, that's interesting. So I would have started on the chase by then. I d- we- because I, I started in September 2011. But I imagine that what you wanted to, to talk to me about was... How do you make political comedy funny? <laughs> it probably was. I think looking yeah. back at the show, I think we did. I, I and now and now we know the answer, which is you can't. <laughs> so it's almost impossible to make political comedy funny unless, like Stuart Lee or Mark Thomas, you have a faithful cabal of people that come and see you who broadly agree with your viewpoints, 
and don't take offence when you say things they don't agree with. That wasn't ever something that you suffered from, was it? You were great. That was the whole thrust of that interview: was how good you were at, at making making the but personal, making the political personal. But how haven't things haven't things changed? I'm a mainstream celebrity now, thanks to the chase. <laughs> And therefore, the kind of people that come and see me are from a far wider demographic. Ah, I wondered if that would be an issue. And it's been a very interesting journey as I've become, I was about to say, fewer and fewer political as an in-joke about grammar pedants, but <laughs> less, less and less political um, as you kind of have the stuffing, stuffing a little bit knocked out of you. It. it after Brexit in 2016, there were a load of articles going around about how pro-Remain uh, pro comedians were struggling in venues full of uh, Brexit-supporting audience members. And I remember reading the articles going, well, of course you're struggling. You're calling them idiots. Yeah. Um, why don't you just concentrate on writing the jokes? Not that they're, I'm not saying it's an easy thing. Rather than, but I think that politics has become something where it's just very difficult to deal with. It's a very unfashionable thing to talk about now. And I'm very much aware that when you open your mouth and express an opinion, you just lose fans. Regardless of the, regardless of the opinion you're expressing, you will lose fans. And how important uh, to you is that? Given that, like, you are now in the position of being like proper mainstream famous, and if anything happens in your life, tabloids, you know, it's a news story. Um, so, do you need to retain fans to the extent that you have I don't to think do something needs other to than you want to say? I don't think anyone needs to retain fans. If someone doesn't want to go and watch you do comedy, that's entirely their choice, and it's a choice that needs to be respected. I don't think you should worry too much about whether maintaining or losing fans just not insulting them yes okay uh not calling them twats i think uh biting the hand that feeds is another way of saying it sounds like i'm being very cowardly and say oh 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 i mustn't say this or i mustn't say that because so and so from romford might end up not buying tickets from my show in romford it's not that it's just i've gotten weary of the fight yeah a little bit and I've just got other things to talk about as we know and so what I've become is gone from being a political comedian to an exceptionally personal storytelling comedian that's the journey that I've made and my first tour show that I did after going on the chase I had a bit of a break from doing long form comedy I, I did Edinburgh in 2011 and then I started a tour show again in 2013 2014-ish mm -hmm. called called Paul Sinha as a stand-up comedian. And it was an ironic title because my new fan base, a lot of them didn't know I was a stand-up comedian. In many ways, I suddenly had to go back to the beginning because The Chase has introduced my face to a lot of people that don't know me as a stand-up comedian. So it was a slightly ironic title, but it was an interesting journey because I played in front of a lot of right-wing people. And the reason I did that is because there are a lot of right-wing people. <laughs> sure. There's statistics will suggest that you every time you walk on stage, you'll play to a lot of right-wing people. And I learned a lot about, about varying the tone. That's one of the things. I think when you're standing on stage for 20 minutes, going wanging on about being gay, which is uh, my description of how a lot of people see me, that's all right because it's 20 minutes. And it's also very joke-intensive. But over uh, 60, 70, 90 minutes, 
the joke starts wearing thin <laughs> quite quickly, especially for... Uh, I'm reminded of my ex-boyfriend who overheard someone say at the end of a gig in uh, Surrey, I'm glad I didn't bring my wife. She hates fudge packers as well. Oh, my uh, God. And I'm reminded of the time that about eight people in Rotherham just walked out within three or four minutes of me saying that I was gay. And I'm like, this isn't my fault. I've been very open. I've, you, you're the ones that have not done the reading. Um, Were you? Do, do you feel that your previous existence as a stand-up comedian at festivals with audiences full of lefty festival goers and Radio Four fans, do you think it kind of insulated you from that reality? I don't think I've ever been insulated because I'm a club comic. Um, you know, I, I've stood at the, I've stood at the coalface banging out very apolitical jokes um, about bumming and cocksucking. And <laughs> sometimes the other way around, uh, because I'm versatile. <laughs> and I know what it's like at the coalface. I don't feel I've ever been one of these uh, insulated comedians, no. The other thing is I do a fair amount of corporate work. Um, and it's not an easy subject to talk about, but... Because you don't a you don't want to boast about money and b you don't want to look like you sold out. A lot of the gigs are great. A lot of corporate gigs are really good. And I put my hand on heart and say there are gigs that have enriched my soul. Mm. Uh, because the ones I really really like are ones um, supporting industry, retail. You know, rewarding the best this and the best that and the best this and the best that. Best shoe shop in Cardiff, best shoe shop in Coventry, whatever. Rewarding people who work hard for a living. Mm -hmm. I actually really like those. That is a lovely way of thinking about it, actually. I've done some of those sorts of, you know, awards ceremonies for people who do a real thing. And and that is, you're right, that is satisfying. It is different. And what what happens then is you drink afterwards. If you you had a good one, uh, your neediness for a company and people going, you're really funny today. There's nothing better than a, People saying, you were really funny today. Well done, well done. So your need for that approval means you stay for a couple of drinks and you start drinking with the Tories and you hear their point of view. And although you can't be bothered to go, I disagree with every word that you say, at least you're hearing their point of view and you're listening and you know what it is. So when Brexit came along, I wasn't surprised. None, I wasn't surprised at all. I had a feeling from the corporate gigs that I was doing that that was the way the wind was blowing. Uh, and I had a feeling that proved to be true that the kind of people who felt strongly enough about it to vote mm-hmm. were likely to vote, uh, let's get out and let's stay in. So I don't consider myself an insulated comic at all. Um, I'm somebody... Well, I, I'm going to be... I'm, you know, I warned you that I, I'm going to talk for Britain, so uh, the conversation will ramble in many directions. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. But one of the side effects of being a minor television celebrity is that I really like to get drunk with strangers <laughs> um, uh, after gigs. And that's when you hear what the world and his wife are thinking and talking about. Yes. And so while other people are going, oh, they booed me just for... All I said was... Anyone who votes for Brexit is a retard who needs to be killed. <laughs> That's all I said. And for some reason, they started booing me. And I just don't understand what I'd said wrong. Uh, you get that sort of... I've never been that sort of movie. Have a joke. 
if if you're gonna do, I think I said I've listened to our interview last time, and what I said to you was the trick with political comedy is have a joke and have a political opinion, but don't always make it at the same time. Yes, I've changed that now to have a joke. <laughs> if you if if you've got a joke that makes people laugh, they suddenly forget that they don't necessarily agree with the sentiment of the joke. Okay. So, I, you know, I give you an example. I don't think I had this joke. I may have just started doing this joke. But my first, my, the boyfriend I had when we last did this was very, very Tory, very right-wing. And I had the joke, the sex is amazing. He likes to pretend he's the late Margaret Thatcher and that I'm the British manufacturing industry in the 1980s. <laughs> That's a joke that survived the most Tory of audiences because it's a joke. Yeah. It's a, str- it's a strong joke. And let's be honest... If you voted Tory, you did so because they destroyed the manufacturing industry in the 1980s and it gave you a bit of a hard-on. So <laughs> he, 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 if you write a joke that's funny enough, it doesn't really matter. But writing routines is a lot harder if you're expressing opinions that an audience don't agree with. So this is a very long way of saying I've become a storytelling personal comedian. And that's, Since we last met. And that isn't... I mean, one of the things that was so successful about your, inverted commas, political stuff was that it was all embedded in your life. So it's not too much of a, a leap to excise some of the trickier asks and and just do the story stuff. No, that's true. But what's changed is my life. Yes, well, so yeah, we are, you're not short of material, <laughs> given... Um, when we when we last met, I was ent- I was dipping my toes in the world of minor celebrity. Now it's my life. It's and it's it's the position. It's one of the two things where the funniest things occur from. My, my the, the dissonance between my uh, relative discomfort of being a minor celebrity and the reality of being a minor celebrity. And secondly. Um, um, I can't remember what I was about to say there. Uh, secondly, <laughs> secondly, some really, really clever concept that I just <laughs> cannot remember what I was going to say. Um, but also, fam, you know, you knew me when we started as the man who'd always been single. Yes. Suddenly, I've got relationships to talk about. Yeah. And it's really funny because it's me who's never had a relationship talking about being in a relationship. And obviously, it's a cartoonish out of respect for the people I go out with, it's a cartoonish version of what being in a relationship is. But um, I've, I've had that string to my bow for the first time in my life. You've So, yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there is there's so much that's happened in your life since we last spoke. That's happened in the world and happened in your life. And so I listened to your, I listened to a hazy, a hazy little thing called Love. Was that your last tour show or was it, I listened to a preview I don't know what state that is, whether you have toured that yet or whether that's something that's been put on hold. Is, it, is this the one about everything in the last 18 months? Uh, it's the, it's, uh, it's Ollie, the proposal, all of that. Yes, that is, it, I, I see it as a superhero with a nemesis called COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's the show that was cruelly yanked from the schedules yes. in the middle of March this year. Uh, I, I, I played uh, Peterborough, in March, and we looked at each other, me and the audience, and we knew this was going to be it for the next, for the next. Yeah, the, 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 the lockdown was on its way. It was a very bittersweet, bittersweet 
experience in the sense that um, it was a really good gig. And yeah. yet I knew, even though I had three gigs booked in the following week, that they were all going to disappear from my schedules. And lo and behold, they all disappeared from my schedules. Did you? And so I've not I've not done the show since March. Do you have what we what I sort of recognise as the given that your your former life as a GP, anyone I know who works or has worked in medicine seems to have that kind of insider information on what they expect from COVID, what they expect from the recovery time from a pandemic. I feel like most of the chats I have with my friends are, you know, they're along the lines of my sister, who's a nurse, says X, Y, Z, or predicted X, Y, Z about what we can expect. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's funny you say that because that is essentially the last two weeks of March for me. Yeah. So I did Peterborough on a Thursday uh, I believe. And then two days later, a friend of mine called Amy, who's a respiratory physician at St. Thomas's Hospital, sent me a, a, a message on Facebook going, make sure everyone you love is safe. Which is quite an apocalyptic message. Yeah. When you're expecting, are you watching Match of the Day? That that goal by, uh, you know, that's the kind of message you're expecting <laughs> on Saturday. And it was, make sure everyone you love is safe. And it was at that point that I realised that my three tour gigs that week were not going to happen. Yeah. And then the they then followed what I can only describe as a bizarre chain of events, where on impulse, given that I've got a sister and husband, a sister with her husband and two small kids who live less than a mile from me, and I've got a mum and a dad, who my dad had just come back from a heart operation, who live less than a mile from me. Me and Ollie decided, which I, by which I mean I decided, and Ollie tagged along that we wouldn't uh, isolate in our small, rather cramped flat in South London uh, and stayed in this place on the outskirts of the Surrey-London borders uh, called Byfleet. I didn't know how long I was going to stay. Turned out three months. Who knew? Um, uh, But on that, we left on the Thursday, uh, which I think was the 18th, and then on the 20th, I woke up with what was clearly COVID. Um, and uh, I could never be more grateful to the fact that I had a WhatsApp group full of consultant physicians who were able to guide me as to what to do on a day, day you know, on a day-to-day basis. I was, never short of, I was never short of the best clinical help over the phone. But I woke up on the Saturday afternoon after a 12-hour sleep, went down, had some lunch, fell asleep, woke up about 12 hours later. And I thought, well, that's never happened to me in my life. Mm-hmm. And what's more, I've got a dry cough. I've got a swirling fever. I feel absolutely awful. I feel absolutely exhausted, despite having had 24 hours sleep in the last... I knew what was going on. Um, and a weird, the weirdest... I don't know where's the right place to say this. This is a comedy podcast, but... In the middle of the week, one of my friends died of COVID-19. Um, I tweeted my despair. Next thing I knew, tabloid newspapers were harassing my agent to ask her whether I was going to say anything else about my friend that died of COVID-19. The answer clearly, no. Uh, at this point, I realised that I was the reason that the family of a friend of mine was seeing their de- their loved one's photo in the tabloid newspapers. And you can imagine how how well that made me feel mm. i was getting i was constantly having to crush the urge to fight the tabloids 
My friend's going, stay in bed, stay in bed, stay in bed, stay in bed, stay in bed. Don't fight them. Use your energies for something else. Um, And then seven days after the Saturday that I woke up, I couldn't breathe. Um, I couldn't walk to the bathroom without being very short of breath. Almost psychically, my respiratory consultant friend rang me up and said, you need to go to the hospital. I rang up the NHS. They said... We'll ring you back in any time in the six in the next six hours. Mm-hmm. And when they did ring me back, my incompetent fat fingers completely failed to answer my mobile phone. And when I tried to ring the number back, um, it wouldn't answer uh, because it wasn't that sort of phone number. It was one way only. And I thought to myself, "Well, I'm done for." And I walked to the bathroom in the afternoon. And I suddenly realised, I've just walked to the bathroom. I couldn't do that this morning. I've just walked to the bathroom. And that's when it occurred to me, as simultaneously that I missed the phone call, my body had started to fight back. So it all happened on the same Saturday. And I can't remember whether you saw my post on Facebook, but at this point my consultant friend rang me up and said, oh, I said, have you noticed I can actually speak to you? And he just very blithely said, "All oh, right, yeah, day eight, the recovery. You're you're going to be all right." Jesus. What he didn't what what he didn't say was it's going to take quite a long time, but you're going to be all right. Yeah. And I went onto Facebook and said, "I've just been told I'm going to be all right," and then was really really ill for the next seven days, <laughs> well, wondering where is this recovery coming from. He was right that rep- that day represented that morning if you plot the graph of where I was, was the worst day. And ever since then, I've been in fight back. And clearly, from his words, they see a lot of people who start recovering eight days in. Mm. But it strikes me as being unbelievable that if I was more competent at answering my phone, I'd have been in hospital and not rec- not recovering. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the way it is. Um, I had a very, very straight... And it's my job, one day, to make it funny. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what you're constantly thinking as you're lying in bed with illness comedy tragedy time and that's the kind of stuff that i do now is try and make tragedy comedy uh, comedy tragedy plus time and so one day i'll make you funny but i had the most extraordinary march the 20th Let, let's just let's just stay with that for a second because to what extent at that moment of thinking i'm done for what sorts of things were you thinking about your life? Like you, I mean, we know that you were diagnosed a few years ago with Parkinson's. I've got no idea about the long-term prognosis of that or your personal expectations of the, the rest of your life. Like what, what kind of relationship have you got with mortality at the moment? None at all, because I don't think about mortality. I really don't. Um, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's last year. And as far as I'm concerned, I've just got to enjoy what I've got while I've got it. I don't know when this is all going to start kicking off. I mean, apart from the fact that my medication makes me uh, tired fairly regularly, I'm functioning well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel that my creative output... It's interesting. I'd say that my creative output has increased enormously. But I think the main reason for that is I didn't know I was unwell for a couple of years. And so I didn't realise that my creative output 
was a bit subpar in a couple of years before that. I say subpar. My 2017 show, um, which was called Shout Out to My Ex, and the show was about the weird two years after the, the week after the Edinburgh Festival of 2016, by 2015, my ex announced that he was re- breaking off the relationship because he wanted to live life as a heterosexual man. There then follows a series of incidents and accidents um, over the next two years that ends with me now finding a new boyfriend. Uh, and it was the best realised show that I'd ever taken to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and it was great to take a show that you knew was really, really good. And, you know, it, it's a, it was a great advert for having a, a fallow year between Edinburgh mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Because I'd gone out in 2015 and then taken a year out. Uh, and it was great. And in September that month, I woke up with a frozen shoulder. Uh, and I've never had any orthopedic problems before. And everybody thought it's just an orthopedic problem. And so with the assumption that it was an orthopedic problem, I just carried on life just with a frozen shoulder. Uh, then in 2018, um, I was invited. I, they did my, my first investigations for frozen shoulder in 2018. They found out as, as a uh, sideline side that I had probably had diabetes. Mm. Uh, and at the same time as that, I ended up on a fast-fixed fast diabetes reality show that I was invited to before I found out that I had diabetes. <laughs> um, that got rid of the diabetes, but the shoulder never got any better. And then we come to 2018 and taking a show about health. Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. Turn what's happened to you in the last two or last year into a show. And as I said, I found that I was really tired at the Edinburgh Festival. Tired of the fight in the fact that I had... A spat at the beginning of the, of the run with Kate Copstick, okay. who had written a particularly ignorant article where she basically was taking revenge for the fact that uh, I said I don't want any reviewers in on the first preview night. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, well, this show can't be ready then. Ignoring the fact that I got a standing ovation from 280 people at South Shields for the Sunday of that particular week, she decided that my show can't be ready because she wouldn't be let into my preview. The reason I don't want reviewers in the previews, you're getting used to the room, the technical aspect, the techie, the sound cues, the space, the lighting. You've get you you've got all of these things that you're just running through in your head. Uh, that means the, a reviewer is the last thing I want on the, on the first show. After that, it's, free, free, it's a free-for-all. Anyone can come. So it was a weird curate's egg of a... Edinburgh in 2018. It was a good show, but it wasn't as good as the previous year. And some drunk friends were only too keen to tell me. We enjoyed the show, but we didn't think it was as good as last year's show. And we're like, no need for that, thanks. (laughs) Um, um, In March last year, I I finished touring the show with a run at the Soho Theatre. And lots of my medical school friends came. And none of them saw anything odd mm. about the way that I was shuffling across stage and generally feeling a bit limited in my movement. Dominic Maxwell of the Times criticises the quality of my physical movement <laughs> when um, reviewing me at the Leicester Square Theatre. I hope he's feeling suitably chastened. <laughs> um, and then everything starts sort of 
unraveling in New Zealand last year. So I know you're a big fan yeah, of New Zealand. Shoot, love it. Uh, I did my first New Zealand comedy festival last year, and it was a joy. I mean, it was like nothing. I've no, you won't know this, but I've never done an overseas comedy festival ever. I didn't know but, that. Why? Why um, was that? When I was Flavor of the Month, which is two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, Shappy and Stephen Kamos were coming through at the same time. And I think they just had their fill of, of <laughs> they had their fill of literate ethnic. Um, if I, it, you, you know, you laugh. I think that's probably why it was. God. But but also, there's never been a universality about my material. My material has been quite British. That's true. That's true. Um, and so I wonder whether that had a. But I never got asked. Okay. Never done Melbourne, uh, and I remained resolutely off the radar in New Zealand until The Chase becomes the most popular TV show pretty much in New Zealand. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know why it's... I have no idea why it's hit hit, hit the right button, but my word, we're proper A-list what, in New Zealand. What an idyllic experience. I always think this, with particularly with comics, when you have fame that is not centred around your comedy... To be able to turn up and be a super famous guy and then have the comic chops of a twenty-year career must be. Oh well, it was that, gee, that was that was that was very much the dream because I was able to do a greatest hits um, oh, yeah. show that was mostly based on the last two years. Oliver was treated like a king. I was treated like a king, and you may, you may or may not be unaware of the uh, the humorous side effect which was the increasing frustration of Mr. Alistair Barry. Um, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. He, he suffered what I only described as the funniest humiliation <laughs> of all time when he wrote a really, really good and thorough uh, food blog. You know he does a food blog. Okay, okay. I think uh, I did so that. He was reviewing um, restaurants in the New Zealand area. Uh, and often me and Ollie would be with him enjoying the food with him and we'd get name checked in the blog and then one day a New Zealand newspaper had a report that was headlined Cineman from the Chase massively enjoying New Zealand food <laughs> and it was all just a report on Owl's blog where he didn't get in the headline for the, for the story <laughs> oh heartbreaking and there was also the, the time that I, I tweeted something about an ultra right wing homophobic New Zealand political figure called Brian Tamaki. Uh and that made the news. And the way I found that it made the news is I was sitting in a van taking us from the airport back to Auckland when it came up on the screen in the van. The Chase's cinema and takes swipe at Brian Tamaki. Wow. That was one of the oddest things. Um, I was so, worried that anyway. story was going to end with the way I found out I was in a van and another van um, came and cut us off and <laughs> ran us off the road. Well, I got a lot of free food, a lot of attention. Uh, it was great. It was, I mean, it was wonderful. Uh, but it was quite clear that my health was deteriorating. Yeah. And there's there's there were some really hard nights of the soul towards the end because I've always been a selfie person. I've always been a, I will stay and I'll reward everyone that's come to the show with a selfie. And I was exhausted by the end of the run and my shoulder was, my shoulder was really, really tight and I could barely move and I was just exhausted and I knew something was up. And I'm, to be honest with you, I when I say I knew something was up, I knew it was Parkinson's. I knew. Yeah. I'd done the reading. I'd worked out that uh, 
everything I'd had was actually quite typical for Parkinson's. Uh, so, it's, and, and, so and those and those symptoms were a reduction in your movement capacity, tightness in your body, exhaustion. Limp. Yeah, limp. And the, 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 is there a mental is there know. a mental component besides the exhaustion? Um, I, do you know what? I think it's different for everyone. I wouldn't want to make any sweeping statements on that. I think from a mental point of view, it's different for everyone. But I had the whole thing then of coming back and uh, knowing that I needed to find out straight away because of Ed, I had a, a run booked in Edinburgh. And so I found out that week, end of May, when I, pay, I paid to go and see a private consultant as soon as possible um, because I, I had to have a decision as soon as possible. Uh, he said, you've got Parkinson's. And I said, oh, next year's Edinburgh. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> this is- finally, finally, I've got the pathos that I've been looking for all this time. Um, obviously, I was devastated. Um, that goes without saying. But the first two weeks, far worse than anything else. Going through your relatives, going through your friends, going through the sheer broken-hearted misery of your mum and dad who are looking at you just going, what can we do? And seem in disbelief that the answer is simply nothing. Um, and that's when the next stage of my career starts. Um, because uh, after the initial shock and had worn off, I thought to myself, right, I'm not doing Edinburgh this year. I'm bloody well doing Edinburgh next year. I didn't know. I didn't know that mm. the Chinese virus had, was going to have, <laughs> have, have a say in all of this. Um, and it was my idea to, to write a big, big show. Also, in August or September, I can't remember, I did a gig with Vicky Stone. Mm-hmm. And I saw her on stage and I thought to myself, fuck this, I'm going to start doing some songs as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the key thing is, because I can, uh-huh. because now I don't give a shit, fundamentally. Okay, um, okay. So that, that's the big thing that's changed. So talk to me, just, just, been... just to hover on that for a second. You would have done, you might have done songs previously, but felt too inhibited? Is that what no, I should infer from that? I, I can't sing. Um, I, I mean, I really, really can't sing. So I've created, an, well, I should not say created a narrative. I've created a, no, I've created a narrative of the song that explains why I'm playing the piano, even though I can't sing. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's actually based on the truth, which is that uh, one of the New Zealand comics runs a piano bar in North Auckland, and he'd heard a rumour that I could play the piano from Lloyd Langford. Well, when Lloyd Langford made me play the piano, I was pissed off my face. It was the last night of Edinburgh in 2004, and I was a very, very different human being to the one <laughs> I am now. I turned up to the bar out of politeness and couldn't play the piano at all. And so for me, playing the piano is a symbol of the fight back. Okay. It's, it, it, it's, it's a symbol of me going, right, Parkinson's is stopping me from playing the piano. No, it bloody well isn't. Okay. And so I've become a musical comedian. Um, I have a song at the beginning and the end of my show. And in my opinion, they're both good. <laughs> Not in everyone's opinion, but the point. But the point is, it doesn't matter. The point is, I'm doing it because I I can. 
that- and this is all this is all part this is all part of a show that I've written that I'm really really proud of that has got massive numbers of surprises at every ju- at every juncture mm-hmm. and that is the one thing that I can promise you about the show is it's full of oh my bloody god because I now look back on my last few years and it all suddenly pieces together uh, and also this is my chance to tell you everybody what's happened to me in the last four years and it's with big jokes if you think there are you've seen half the show I've seen half the show, half I've the show. Got, I will, yeah. I'm looking forward to the second half of it yeah uh, there are some real real things that are going to take you aback in the second half okay um, and I'm really really proud of it and that's why at the moment I know that you shouldn't moan because other people are worse off, but the fact that I've been removed from the touring comedy circuit by this pandemic um, is of a massive frustration to mm. me. Um, and the show is me slightly unleashed. Okay. And that's what's changed. Is What has changed is I don't feel any fear. I feel that these have got to be the years where I say the stuff that I've always wanted to say on stage or be the comedian that I've always wanted, uh, aspire to be the comedian that I've always wanted to be on stage, which is wrong-footing and brutally honest. This is Paul once again, a joy to have him back. And I think because Paul was one of those people who was a headliner when I was a new squit and someone who I drove to gigs. We shared an agent at that time and uh, I would frequently uh, be subbed in, I guess, as a sort of MC or middle act in order that I could drive him to shows. Um, And I've had the pleasure of his company as a result on numerous occasions and I very much uh, enjoy spending time with him and also the very measured and considered way that he thinks he's a big thinker he know i mean he it's not a an over exaggeration to say that he knows almost everything it is clearly an over exaggeration but the point is he knows lots of stuff and you're you're listening to someone who earlier on had to submit three to five books that really affected my life uh, for lucy dancer's excellent podcast which i shall be on uh, in the in the near future um and it really stumped me <laughs> i was i mean obviously i have read books i just don't access my memory in that way and by the time i'd written down a an example of a stephen king book i've enjoyed i've read everything by stephen king and an example of a terry pratchett book i've enjoyed i've read everything by terry pratchett it was only then that i thought oh christ i better finish sapiens um so that i've got something to say so a joy to spend time with paul and his brain and his wit and we are going to continue this uh, episode in just a moment a reminder comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out all about the the behind the scenes story uh, of how he went down on Taskmaster and his new style of joke writing on Twitter which is very exciting because it contains a kind of cryptic or sort of quiz element Um, so look forward to that if you're in the insiders club or join it if you're not couple of other things the strand that I've been doing you will know will you know who knows anything I, I, I regularly tell everybody what I'm doing via social media and then do it once and then don't mention it again because it sort of clashes with my my values as a human um so like you can't be self-deprecating if you're constantly advertising things that's a big clash he said to people listening to someone unafraid to mention other stuff he's up to god this is florid my point is 
I'm on Twitch, right? I've been trying not to say the word Twitch because it scares people off. But if you go to twitch.tv, that's it, as I always misspell, twitch.tv slash Goldsmith, you can find out everything I'm up to on Twitch. And um, if you're scared of Twitch, then you can just go to infinitesofa.com and it lets you watch it without needing to go to the website. It's just live YouTube, really. And uh, it contains, on Monday nights, we do the Infinite Sofa. You've heard me talk about that a lot. Paul was excellent on that, so a recent appearance. Um, and if you do go to Twitch, or indeed the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash comcompod, you can catch up with previous episodes of the Infinite Sofa there. Tuesday nights, we do Chops Comedy, and uh, we've got some wonderful acts coming up on that, including Maria Bamford, who enjoyed her slot on the Infinite Sofa so much. She's going to come back and do a, a short set of new stuff on, on Chops. Uh, and on Wednesdays, we do a thing called Think Tank. Only Think Tank is a sort of a, a strand, if you like. It's a Wednesday nights. We do fun experiments in the world of comedy and community and creativity and the internet and just sort of seeing what you can achieve when you get a bunch of idiots in a room together and they're all connected to the internet at once and I'm in charge of them. Or I say in charge, cat herding at least. Um, so the strand is Wednesday nights. It's called Think Tank. Last week we did a new thing which worked so well we've given it a proper name. It's called Hive Mind Heaven in which myself and whoever turns up into the Zoom room on the night have 75 minutes to create the perfect experience for a surprise celebrity guest who joins us at 9.15. Show starts at 8 and at 8 o'clock I reveal the guest and their five favourite things um, pre-conversed about, predetermined by me. Uh, in conversation with them, I drop those five things on the team like a bomb and we all go about scrabbling to create some sort of mind heist. Laura Lex was our guest last week and it was sumptuous and you can see that in the videos section of the Twitch channel as well. So basically Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's always something fun and interesting happening uh, in the evening at either eight or nine o'clock at twitch.tv slash Goldsmith. But do go to infinitesofa.com if you find any of that frightening. OK, that's all of that. Let's get back to this episode with Paul Sinner. What's the relationship between that new lack of inhibition and your mainstream audience and the fact that you don't want to... Well, it's interesting because somebody at Southport... Not that I'm... Not that I have a vendetta against anybody that's ever been. <laughs> I love the way negative. you identify specific towns. A Romford audience, someone at uh, Southport. Somebody at somebody at Southport at a gig that was quite frankly massively enjoyable at every level. Somebody at Southport said, "I was very disappointed. All he did was talk about his family and his illness, and being gay." And I'm like, "What the hell did you think I was going to be talking about?" in a show called A Hazy Little Thing Called Love, if it wasn't my relationships, my family, and my illness. I mean, what on, what on earth was she expecting? Yes, it's a show about family, relationships, and illness. Do you know why? That's my life. That has been my life for the last... What on earth do you think... Did you think I was going to recite pi to 300... <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand. And that's part of this, this, this... And it's not like I don't give them stuff about the chase either. I do, I always have done. Um, is it, you know, it's part of my life. I've always had comedic anecdotes. For me, there should be something for everyone. But this is th this is a show that um, really lay, lay, lays it out there. And of course, uh, there's more to come because the show is partly about how I got married, and I've not really done material yet about my wedding day. I've got jokes about my wedding day, but not material about my wedding day. By which I mean 
what was it actually like? What I found listening to the, the part of the preview that I listened to was that your, and this is part of the curse of me doing the podcast, is as soon as I've had someone on the show, I can no longer prioritise catching them at Edinburgh. So I'm a bit behind on your oeuvre, right? So I've, I've, I've seen like six of your shows or five of your shows years ago. And then I'm like, there's been a big gap. So I haven't seen much of yeah. you in the new, you know, persona, the new audience, that kind of thing. I mean, in summary, 2015 was called Postcards from the Z List. And it was amusing anecdotes about how I became a Z List celebrity. 2017 uh, was Shout Out to My Ex. The action packed two years since I got dumped. Uh, 2018 was the health one. Yeah. And then 2019, I had to cancel Edinburgh. Uh, and then 2020 was meant to be this one. Yes, but what I what I really perceive as like the big difference is the because your audience there is some there's some difference in tone because your audience now it reminded me of not being a quizzer myself or being part of that community but knowing that people who are fans of daytime TV are coming to see you but not simply fans of daytime tv fans of daytime tv who have a bent you know as who are leaning towards quiz fans a particular type of people it struck me that tonally it had something in common with a doctor who convention do you know what i mean that there's there's something there's some sort of tone whereby we all have a shared interest and it's like the your your almost part of your job is to facilitate their fandom um and I used to do it literally, uh, by which I mean I used to have a Q&A at the end. Okay. And the, pur- and the purpose of the Q&A was, there are many of you today who have watched me and thought, this has been shit. <laughs> For you lovely people, you get an opportunity to ask me a question about Bradley Walsh. <laughs> and so they put their hand up and they say, what's Bradley Walsh like? Or they say, who do you think is the best chaser? <laughs> or they say, who makes the offers? Etc, etc, etc. And at least they've gone home with something. Um, and do you... For those, it's, go, on, yeah. go on, sorry. And for those people whose idea of hell is to watch an openly gay Asian former doctor turned comedian talk about his life for an hour and a half, at least they've got their question answered about Bradley. And I would say that the questions were 88% the chase and 12% all other things. Do you, and you might find this impossible to answer, honestly, do you respect those people who are there for that reason? As much as a comedy, the only fan. people I don't, the only people I don't respect, are people who turn up and go, "This wasn't what I was expecting, at all," and I don't like it, because there's enough blurb about every show. By the time the show goes on tour, there are reviews all through. Um, I think it's important as a consumer that you do a little bit of research into what you, what product you're attempting to buy, before you decide whether to buy it. So if someone says to me, you weren't what I was expecting, didn't enjoy it, I'd just go, well, that's your fucking mistake then, isn't it? You know, you know it's not for me. I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't come into your house and go, do you want to hear some stories about the chase? <laughs> um, you, you, you have the responsibility to make your own decisions. Is there, um, is, is there in terms of your, your lack of inhibition, were, was, the, was Paul Sinha the comedian 15 years ago? similarly uninhibited well my signature show that you definitely saw saint or sinha put me on the map because it was unhib- mm. uninhibited i feel mm. because it was something of a surprise some very very 
hard-hitting and blunt jokes. And I suppose minor celebrity is... Uh, it's caused me to use velvet more often than previously. Mm. Um, and just, you know... And I've always qualified any stuff about Brexit with, I don't know where your views lie, but... or. Oh, I don't know where your views lie, but you know what? I, I saw your election results. Just something play, just something mm-hmm. playful that, that acknowledges there might be a political distance between. The, if you if you're playful about the, the distance you might have with an audience, I think that's much better than just calling them twats. <laughs> um, and but you know what? It's not how I decide the material. I decide the material on whether I think it's funny. Yeah, and sometimes you're wrong. And you stick with it, and you stick with it, and you stick with it. But I'm kind of lucky that things, you know, none of my stories are lies. My stories are stuff that's happened to me. There's, you know, my signature routine for a bit was the story of uh, four racists in Halifax collaring me in the street, asking me if I had a bomb in my bag. And then one of them said, wait a second, can I get a selfie with you? And this is actually something that happened to me on the way to a gig in Halifax. Uh, Barnsley, sorry, not Halifax, Barnsley. Um, there's, you know, there's... Uh, what's, what's the language guidance on this podcast? Oh, whatever you like. Um, there's a story of a terrifying man at an Anthony J. Brown gig who said to me, you'd better be funny, you triple-necked packy motherfucker. Um, and these, this was a, these were words he actually said to me. Jesus uh, and so real life is going to be plenty to go on. And I really enjoy, I've got no reason to totally fabricate stories from no, obviously I exaggerate. We all do. Um, and obviously, uh, there are anecdotes where I say things that I would never be stupid enough to say in real life. And I said, and there are anecdotes where I say things I'd never be clever enough to say in real life. We all have, we all have, a, we all have anecdotes of both. <laughs> come into those categories when, but all, all the anecdotes are fundamentally true in essence when i think of your when i think of the routines that i'm most like if i were to describe one of your bits to someone the two that spring most readily to mind are uh working in king's lynn stitching up the faces of people oh yeah, verbally yeah. abusing that's you. a long time it's a long ago time now. ago well I, it's a good bit you know and um yeah. you know long uh, connoisseurs of your work will will be familiar with the punchline to do with, you know, scars in the shape of a cock and balls on the faces of people yeah. who've been abusing you. And the other big one for me, and it was one of my favourite circuit jokes of all time, um, was the, do you need any help packing? And I'll just pronounce that. Oh, yeah, my yeah. careful pronunciation of that will let the uh, the enlightened listener imagine what was going on in that punchline. But those- and that is, that is something that actually happened. Incredible. I, that's, where I, <laughs> that's where I got the, that's where I got the joke. Is I was at, at a till and a woman said, "Would you like help packing?" And I nearly burst out laughing. That's the that's actually the end of the actual anecdote. Um, so, I'm, and I'm not going to explain it any further as a as a reward. It's an Easter egg for people who are familiar with your earlier work. But those those things, those routines were, as we know from our first uh, your first appearance on this podcast, they were written in inverted commas in your car whilst driving to gigs and honed over many many club gigs. Yes. Do you find the environment of performing tour shows more so than club gigs to fans who are on board anyway is is helping you create 
bits that are as big and punchy as those club-based routines, those club-honed I'll, routines. I'll, I'll, I'll be totally frank. I've never been a better comedian than I am at the moment. Honestly. I mean, I, I, I sometimes watch videos of club gigs and go, blimey, this is funny. <laughs> um, I don't remember being this uh, crisp. I think crisp is a good word. Um, crisp with the delivery of jokes. But I'm really good at the moment. I mean, I got. I, I, I don't mean to be big-headed, but I'm just, just saying it out there. I got four standing ovations out of four gigs uh, two week two weekends ago. I mean, it, you know, it did help that I got. You know, that I ended very. I ended very big. Yeah. In terms of what I was doing, um, but I think there's just uh, don't give a fuck. More playful attitude to what I'm doing at the moment. I'm take. I'm doing things artistically more whimsical mm-hmm. than you'd expect from me mm-hmm. um i did i did gigs the weekend of gigs that i did a couple of weekends ago there was um behind you were two two billboards of comedians faces um that had played the gig before and i just did this routine about uh there being comedians who played these gigs before some of them when asked if they would do it for a fifth of the price because social distancing means there's not many people in some of them said yes and some of them said no and um, fortunately Wayne the promoter has put each group on a separate poster <laughs> behind my shoulder <laughs> behind my shoulder uh, and um, there was a photo of Simon Evans next to Delisa Chaponda on one of the posters and I just said this is South Africa's premier racial double act <laughs> Simon and Delisa <laughs> The the shtick is that one's a racist and one's a black guy, and it's and it's absolutely hilarious. And at that moment, they just looked like South Africa's premier comedy <laughs> double act. And I think that's what I mean when I say I'm doing things I've not really done before. And I, I should we un- I should we underline that you're not calling Simon Evans a racist at this point? I'm not calling Simon Evans. <laughs> I'm saying that I just on in a certain light, they look like a double act for whom, for whom that could be their shtick. Um, but yeah, and then I got I got because it was an outdoor gig the other day, I got heckled by two dogs in a in a garden next next to it, and that would have, one day that would have completely thrown me. But I was talking about the the wedding at the time on stage, and I just created this thing where these two dogs were hired by us for the wedding, uh, on and they they followed me around every gig shouting homophobic <laughs> abuse, homophobic abuse at me everywhere I go. And they, they, the dog started barking at me again. And I just went, what's that? They were both faggots and one of them was Jewish. <laughs> yeah, you knew that. You knew that at the time. And I was standing on stage going, this isn't me. Im- improvising a whimsical routine yes. about racist, anti-Semitic dogs. Yes, not very improvisational from what I remember. Uh, in, exactly. In, in, in the past. So that's Very an interesting in, inhibition-related... And it's, and it's... Yeah, and... I, I feel that I'm in the form of my life. Things It's not just the Parkinson's. COVID's changed things as well. And it's it's not so much having COVID. It's just that realisation that we've all got to have that nothing's ever going to be the same again. I mean, nothing is ever going to be the same again. The our industry, the way people look at comedy, the way people take in comedy, we have to do the best with what we've got. And the best with what we've got is taking chances for some time. I can't just sit around being the comedian I've been all my life, 
not good enough anymore. Got to move with move with the times. Um, what do you anticipate on just on on this on on COVID or COVID as I've been pronouncing it up till now? But you've got the qualification. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I know. Um, what are your anticipations for what will happen for comedy over the next? Few I've, years? I've no idea. I have no idea. I feel fortunate that, given my level of status, if people do survive, I'm going to be probably in the, you know, survive in terms of their career. I'm likely to be in 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 that group because my face is deemed to sell tickets, mm-hmm. um, and I I, I I already feel desperately sorry. You know, you're aware that our business was morphing and changing, and evolving and devolving before COVID came along, mm-hmm. uh, and it was it become increasingly hard. For instance, for anyone with no TV credits to get a headlining spot at a gig, no matter how brilliant mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't necessarily deemed to sell shift tickets, the, the, the you know we were already decli- live stand-up comedy. I'm talking about was already declining as the option for upwardly mobile people to spend their money. Yeah. Um, because we, the degree to which we're being beaten by Netflix and Just Eat, has never been tr- has never been truly appreciated. Whenever I see an article going why the overly woke PC police are destroying live comedy as an art form. I mean, what are you talking about? Live comedy's changed because Mr. Newly Married Couple who used to go and watch live comedy would much rather sit down with a bottle of Prosecco and, and a, a shish kebab takeaway from Just Eat than they would go out. Mm. Home entertainment is, is such an attractive and alluring thing now. That we have to work harder to compete. And it, what I've found, it, it's it's done. And I agree, I completely agree with that. I hadn't thought about the kind of food-related apps being an issue, but of course they're part of it. One of the things I've noticed, one of the pressures, is that it. I feel comedy is more than ever before streamed into people with TV credits. And there's a lot of TV to be on, so there's a lot of people with TV credits. Like yeah. the supply, and, and people who aren't. The um, the The supply is so much that now like so so there are so many comics out there that now of course there are comics who are model good looking of course there are comics who have yeah, extraordinary well, man- work ethics do you know what i mean because there are simply so many or people who are genius level intelligent do you know what i mean <laughs> like because there are so many comics so the odds of those of us you know it's it's sort of it's not good enough anymore to come on stage and talk about your problems <laughs> you know no matter how honest you are yeah. because there yeah. there are so many other factors at play i think um yeah the, my my third episode of my radio series next week has a joke alluding to that uh there's there is a um there's a supermodel called Titania Patiz um who took who was in the famous vogue cover in 1990 with Naomi Campbell okay. Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista et al. Uh, and me and Ollie call people the Titania Patiz of something when they're the significantly least well-known of a very famous group. Gotcha. And I end next week's radio show. I talk about this for the whole whole half hour. Uh, and I, I say at the end, why am I discussing this for a whole half hour? Because one day I know I'm going to be the Titania Patiz of gay Asian former doctor stand-up comedians <laughs> with Parkinson's disease, um, and it's it's my job to tell our story. Uh, yeah, the, the world is evolving. I was 
you know, there are lots of gay Asian comedians. Uh, there are a few gay doctor comedians. There's gay, do- you know, Adam, me and Adam Kay went to the same school for crying <laughs> out loud. Um, there's, every, everything's covered. Every, um, and it's a competitive thing. And I love it. I love stand-up comedy. Um, I, it gives me such a thrill to stand on stage and it pains me that so many people don't know I'm going to be big-headed here how good I am at it it pains me to when they see me making lame jokes on the chase and they go this guy's meant to be a stand-up comedian yeah oh my word I'm like just or, or they only know me from YouTube just go out and watch live comedy or blow your mind live comedy is, a, is an art form blew my mind the first time I started doing it and still continues to blow my mind when it's done well and Edinburgh for me and Ollie is like is like a it's like a theme park for a month it's just so much fun just watching um, show off I mean Ollie loves comedy more than I could ever love comedy and he, he's like a scavenger <laughs> well, I wake up in the morning and go where Ollie where 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 it turns out he's at the the BCS rooms watching a one man monologue or you know one man monologue on the free fringe about D'Artagnan or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's, um I really I mean I've not been to Edinburgh since twenty eighteen and I miss it so much. Yeah. Um because not because performing is necessarily the greatest thing on earth, because being a performer at Edinburgh comes with so many stresses and anxieties that calling it massively in, in, enjoyable is perhaps not the correct phrase uh but watching everything is massively enjoyable and being in edinburgh for a month is massively enjoyable i think other people have the luxury other chasers are better mentally equipped and could take it lightly but when lockdown began also what else began was a show called beat the chasers a spin-off show from the chase so we had Chase Repeats on in the afternoon and Be The Chaser on in the evening uh, and, and me having COVID-19. Mm. So simultaneously, I was getting newspaper headlines about stuff that happened four years ago, stuff that happened in January and stuff that happened that day. <laughs> and there was, you know, really discombobulating. It's going, which bit of this time machine are they talking about at the moment? I mean, you know... I feel sorry for the journalists more than anything else because they're so um, young and inexperienced and just told to, told to do what they're told. Um, but I don't think they realise that it has it affects people. Mm. Their bad journalism mentally affects people. When they print... I was on Dictionary Corner in Countdown and every so often, if their maths hadn't been got, Rachel, Rachel Riley would give it to me because she knew I liked maths. Mm-hmm. This was turned into... Rachel accuses Paul Sinha of being after her job. Well, actually, she'd said something like, "Oh, we'll be after my job next," yeah. or something. And that, that was you know, just a little little joke. And you got to go, you got to go and contact Rachel Riley to just make sure to say, "Oh, that thing went away. That that's not true. I'm not off. off I'm not after your job." Um, these things have real, you know, real life consequences. If I'm lying in bed ill with COVID nineteen. And the headline is, Bradley calls for Paul Sinha to get the sack. And then you read the story, and it was an episode from 2016 where I got a question wrong. 
And Bradley says, do you know what? I should be up there. You should get the sack as a throwaway joke. And that's now a newspaper headline four, year, yeah. four years later or whatever. Um, but the, these things have real-life effects on people. That's what they don't seem to realise. Do you... That's what I want to ask. It's to do with your... To do with that level of fame. Would you be happier to have, say, half the audiences and uh, half the audience size and never have to put up with that kind of shit? No, because that would be allowing them to win. I'll take whatever life th- I'll take whatever life throws at me, frankly. And for every time I complain about stories in the tabloids, I remember that great night out I had in a bar in Preston or wherever, drinking with drinking with people that I really really liked. And I go, "There's lots of good sides to fame." Yeah. I'm not ungrateful. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not ungrateful at all. The tabloid thing is ridiculous, um, and it nearly it nearly broke me in March the, the, when when I realised that I tweeted about a friend who died. And that friend was now in the papers because I tweeted. Uh, it nearly, it nearly, totally broke me. Well, I'm now having to con- contact, or not having to contact. They contacted me, his family, mm. and said, "Don't worry, Paul. We know, we know what happened." Um, and at times it, it breaks you, but I wouldn't s- swap the good part of being famous at all. Um, there is, there is. At my, at my wedding in December were. F- Four guys, actually four, six guys from Birmingham. I did a gig for Spiky Mike in January 2017 um, at Birmingham Uni. Uh, and one of them sent me a tweet game. We've got a house party. We've got a house party in Birmingham. Do you want to come? And me and Ollie went to this house party. <laughs> and they were at my wedding. And, the, you know, Urban Dictionary has uh, a phrase called the Sinha Sesh. <laughs> To, um, based on this, based on the fact that this story of me going to this house party had, had made the papers, and I think to all the friends that I've made, because I'm sort of famous, and I go, yeah, I wouldn't swap that for the world. Do your worst, do your worst tabloids. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to let you in. I've got two final questions for you, Paul. Um, both of them are things that are kind of staples of uh, this podcast now, but they weren't back when uh, back in 2012. The, okay. The first is, and I would only ask this, obviously, of people I regard as very successful, why aren't you even more successful? That's a really good question. I think at a crucial... Well, I think the fact that I don't have instinctive funny bones is one. I think the fact that at a crucial stage of their careers, Ramesh and Nish showed far harder work ethic than I did. Uh, I, I, I spent too long rest. I spent too long resting on um, this, on familiar material. But I, I basically took f- four years out of doing an Edinburgh show, twenty eleven to twenty fifteen, because these were my che- my first four chase years, mm-hmm. and I was concentrating on the chase. Um, I think that's about it. So do you, do, do you think so? Do you th- like that was quite a key time, I guess, in both Nish and Romish's careers. And yes. you're, do you feel that's like that's an accurate appraisal of the amount of seats at the table for a British Asian performer? I, 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 I feel there are more seats, but I think Nish and Romish maybe occupy a similar territory to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think they're great to be perfectly honest with you. But I also feel that because I've not been at a big agency. 
Um, and I've never paid. I've never paid for PR since two thousand and seven. Mm-hmm. I did this year, by the way. I was going to go with one of the big ones this year. I was that confident I was going to have a good Edinburgh. I was, I'd got an. Uh, uh, I won't mention her name, um, but um, I had PR for this year. That's how seriously I was taking yeah. it. But I think that PR does make a big difference. I found so. I feel so conflicted when newer acts or any acts contact me and say, "Hey, should I spend money on PR?" at Edinburgh I feel so conflicted I never know what to say I never want to advise people to throw two grand plus VAT as a PR person but I can see it make a difference to some people but um, I don't really know why I've never been asked to do Live of the Apollo because I think my skill set's perfect for it yeah right but but I've never been asked to do Live of the Apollo or, or McIntyre um, so I think the fact that a certain agency don't throw any work my way mm-hmm. Is always will always be part of the reason I'm not more famous. But I'm certainly not bitter. I've, I've pursued pursued my own path and luck. You know, got lucky with the chase in increasing people's awareness of me whilst doing something that I'm really good at. Um, so that's the other thing, Stuart. I'm the British champion. No one can ever take that away from me. Um, it's a weird set of circumstances in which it happened, but. For 12 months of my life, I was the British quiz champion. It's going to come, my reign is going to come to an end in three weeks. But <laughs> Will they, unless you get to pull the Jordan Brooks special move whereby they cancel the next, the next event and you get two years out of it. But I also think that um, people can find it very easy to label you. And often that labeling is not necessarily as nuanced as reality. Yeah. So to some people, I'm that gay comedian. To some people, I'm that gay Asian comedian. To some people, I'm that comedian who likes football. To some people, I'm that comedian that does Radio 4 shows. To some people, I'm that, I'm that guy that's on the chase. Mm-hmm. There's very few people who realise I'm all, I'm all of those things. Uh, no, no, no one seems to take in the totality. I've had, I've had a, a remarkable 20, 20 years... And yet I'm still not that famous. I mean, imagine being the guy who was voted best foreign comedian at the New Zealand Comedy Festival and the guy who won the British Quiz Championships. And they both took place in the same year that you got married, that I got married, and I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and I appeared as one of Taskmaster's least successful contestants. Imagine that all happened in the same year Perhaps really ought to be more famous than that. <laughs> but but I'm certainly not bitter about it. Last question. Are you happy? I have tantrums and I always come through the tantrums. That's that's the that's the answer. Am I in a happy place? Yes. Do I veer off that happy place frequently, even daily? Yes. Um but overall I consider myself a happy person. Happy with my lot. Happy with my life. Oh, bloody lovely Paul Sinner. There we are. There he is. I I love spending time with him. There's some great uh, some listener questions which were asked via the, the ComCom Facebook group about transferable skills from being a doctor, um, about loosening up your delivery of gags, uh, about whether there was a sort of crossover from his persona uh, as a GP and a comic, and of course some some really interesting inside track stuff on Taskmaster and uh, why he 
had the experience that he had. So all of that available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, uh, where you can join the Insiders Club and also get those fantastic comcom uh, writing tips from Gary Goldman. If you haven't heard Gary's episode that came out last week, please dip back into that. Um, plus all of the extra material uh, from any episode that has extra material. And it is now, God, I mean, it's got to be, it's getting on for 100 hours, isn't it? Must be, probably more. Loads of extra stuff. Uh, join up if you please and that's the the way that i would encourage you to support the podcast i do occasionally get one-off donations but it's much better for both of us if you subscribe for a minimum two pounds or as much as you want but remember even if you pay more you get the same stuff we're democratizing the extra content and not serving those of you who have more money than the others i should probably reduce that to a soundbite but i haven't that's all. Um, oh, a little bit of, a uh, little bit of, I mean, dare I call it fan mail? Yeah, someone, uh, a guy called Luke, a comic called Luke, uh, got in touch and said this. I'll tell you what, let's cover this in the postamble. I'll talk to you in the, the postamble is the, the bit at the end of this podcast where I kind of talk to you a bit more about my life because I like to stay relatively quiet during the actual show and let the guests speak for themselves. So let's consider that the guest has now spoken for himself. And uh, I hope you will catch up with Paul. He's quizzing all over the place on Zoom um, and you can see him pop up all over the Internet and indeed on telly. So please do that. Um, but stick around uh, for the post in just a second. I will speak to you next week. Look after yourself. So, yeah, here we go. This is Luke. Luke says, listening to the first podcast back after the break, that was the Larry Dean episode a few weeks ago, I noticed that I'd lapsed in my consideration of mental health issues for the last few months. It's mainly because of after a few months of stress, all of my shows on cruise ships being cancelled and worrying about the future. Will I ever get to do that cruise show again? My partner and I got ourselves sorted out into a new normal with new plans for the future. Well done, Luke. I've not really been exposed to other people struggling with depression or mental health issues. And while that was talked about a lot in general early on in the COVID lockdown times, it has fallen away a lot now. But the sign off at the end of your podcast meant a lot to me. I hadn't noticed that the ComCom pod was a regular reminder that, hey, you might be doing OK, but keep in mind there are lots of people who might not be. It might be weird that I need this reminder, but it was only when the podcast was on hiatus and then returned that I noticed it so clearly. So thanks, and I hope your therapy goes well, even if you can't talk about it on the pod. I'm a cool guy, etc. That's the code, if you remember. I'm a cool guy means you'll forgive me if I just get back to you with a single line, <laughs> because otherwise my anxiety makes me reply to every single email in as much depth as I have time for, and I often have no time for it. But anyway, thank you for being cool, Luke. Um, and thanks for that. I, I appreciate it. It is increasingly my mission statement to remind everyone to be kinder to themselves and to each other. It'd be nice if that could be boiled down into uh, a, an original and unique sounding soundbite, but I haven't got round to it because I only ever really think in this mode. My God. OK, let's let's deal with this in, in sections. Um, I'm sorry to hear your cruise ships. Uh, your cruise ship gigs were cancelled and who knows when they will return. I, I know that must be scary. And that's a particular, I suppose... You know, no one's out there banging a drum for, hey, what about the cruise performers? But come on, they're entertainment professionals who specialise just like any of us. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's it's just so hard, isn't it? I'm, I suppose because of the nature of the stuff I'm doing online, I'm frequently in touch with comics who are, I suppose, well diversified in their output because the nature of me getting them to do stuff online with me is, means that they're doing stuff online. But I, I absolutely am aware that a lot of comics really rely on big live experiences. And, you know, I mean, I see the the abandonments, the people who've... Um, <laughs> the abandonments, I've just made Rob Broderick sound like he's a band. 
a bandaman, aka Rob Broderick, friend of the show. He's doing incredible stuff. He's got a Twitch channel that's been made partner and is doing Instagram lives all the time and has done the most is self-taught, sumptuous visuals and incredible kind of technical pop-ups. He's just completely taught himself how to kill online. Not all of us have got... Obviously, he's a freestyle rapper, so there's that kind of like twin-pronged, wonderful um, kind of profusion of stuff. A profusion of stuff, hmm, thinks autobiography title. Um, but not everyone is in that position. Not everyone has the space in their life to relearn and, and pivot and diversify. You know, people have got multiple children. <laughs> there's a thing, not just children, multiple children. Um you know, people have very specific uh, uh, live acts that can't work online, and people, are, and of course, the cruise performers and other people who have kind of specialised in in very specific ways of uh, of performing, which are on hiatus, perhaps for a long time, if not ever. So, I'm all I don't know. What am I reminding you of? I'm just saying, let's remember that we're all in different boats. <laughs> That's it. COVID. We're all in different boats. Never has that been truer, I suppose. Um, I, I think I always think they're very hard trying to write jokes about the experience of the pandemic because it really highlights how different everyone's experience is. If you're a single parent in a tower block with no garden, your lockdown was wildly different to a lot of people's. And um, I think we should just keep trying to exercise empathy in as much as that's possible. If it's not possible, don't bother. Um, but thank you for getting in touch, Luke. Um and uh, thank you. I, I appreciate your words and your kind donation to the pod as well. So what to say? I mean, I haven't. I've, I've sent another email to another therapist who, again, has not got back to me as quickly as I would hope. Maybe it's better if your uh, therapist doesn't get back to a sort of introductory. Your potential therapist is too busy with work to get back to uh, an expression of interest email. Maybe that means they're good. Maybe it'd be bad if they replied immediately. I caught myself replying to a piece of podcast uh, listener email. Don't say fan mail. Um, far too quickly recently and stopped myself. I happened to be doing some admin and it pinged up and I started replying. And I was like, you know, really desperate, Stu. <laughs> so I inserted a little fake pause there. Maybe that was you if you've been in touch recently. Um, I suppose, yes. Yeah, so I've, I've, looked, I've started looking for a new person. They haven't got back to me. What else is going on in the world? Scary hospital trip with the boy. Not COVID related, asthma related. Happens every year at this time. Dealt with, very organised. Packed far too much stuff into three bags before going, thinking last time it was 36 hours and an overnight stay. This time, very quick. Thank you to everyone at Hossie. And I won't identify the Hossie, but obviously, you know, all Hossies. Thanks to everyone at all Hossies. <laughs> Apologies for continuing to say Hossie, but I, I will keep doing that. Um, it's barely an apology, is it? Um, and oh, I tell you what, I tell you what, here's some heartbreaking homework for you. Um, and not just heartbreaking, very funny as well. Um, Laurie Kilmartin is my guest on the podcast, uh, an hour and a half ago, which didn't happen because I fucked up which coast she was on and we've had to hastily reschedule because it was five in the morning, uh, <laughs> where she is and not eight in the morning as I had thought even that bit of an early start, but Hey, she's a working mum. So she's like 8am. My kids start zoom school. I'm there. Um, that is now happening in a, in a couple of hours. But before that episode comes out, and it'll be a while, we've got happily got a bit of a backlog of, of excellent content now. Um, but in the meantime, go and read her Twitter feed. She's anylaurie16, uh, laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E, or just Google uh, Laurie Anderson. 
Um, her, have I said Anderson both times? It's Kilmartin. It's Laurie Kilmartin. Why have I said Anderson? Who knows? Laurie Kilmartin is going to be on the show. Maybe I only said it once. I don't know and I cannot, brackets be bothered, to close brackets, check. Um, but uh, she, Laurie Kilmartin... Is, is such a wonderful comic. She's a writer for Conan. She's a brilliant stand-up. Get if you're on Spotify or the internet. If you're in the internet, you should get on it. Um, you can listen to forty-five jokes about my dead dad, which is a uh, uh, an absolutely note-perfect, clean as a whistle show, which is the sort of thing you should listen to a little five-minute section of if you are about to sit down and do some writing, because it'll just reprogram your brain on clarity. She's like a, a Seinfeld or an Ivana Ristigator. Premise, expansion of the idea, act out, carefully selected vocabulary, just bang, 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 it's all there. It's like, oh my God. It's like it, the jokes are funny and also a lesson in how to write jokes. Um, but also, uh, very sadly, she lost her mother to covid and uh, she tweeted, she live tweeted it because this was during big lockdown a few months ago. And um, she was in a position where she was with her mother via an iPad as her mother passed away. She tweeted throughout in an incredibly beautiful and very frequently funny, challengingly funny um, and and very heartwarming and rending kind of a way so have a look at those Laurie Kilmartin she's coming up on the show I'm recording it in a few hours and it'll be with you in a matter of weeks um and uh, that is a big recommendation so let's leave it there for now I've just sort of been doing that with my day and having raised that any other administrative efforts I've been banging on about now seem like piffle in comparison as well they should but your own concerns and your own mental health and your own ability or inability to get a load of things done and make yourself feel good is not piffle so don't think i'm writing it off <laughs> i i made the mistake i made the mistake of reading below the line on some youtube video or other of mine and um someone commented that i was really cringe <laughs> and i don't mind at all because i'm really cringe um, but i have kept thinking of it it's months ago i said oh even longer maybe um, but for some reason, it's been in my head recently because I was just thinking, I am I'm kind of quite cringe, aren't I? <laughs> I don't care. Um, I, and then I self-righteously thought, well, well, if cringe means you care about people, then cringe I may be. But let's be honest, it's, that's not what it means, is it? <laughs> I just I've never been so I've never been so unhurt by so accurate a slam. <laughs> um, there we go. Should we leave that in? Let's leave it in. Um, I, I just for some reason it's maybe I'm thinking of it more and more because I'm trying to be more and more honest with things I think and say in any broadcast medium. Um, so maybe I am being more honest and as a result I'm being more cringe. And uh, even though it was only one person that said it, it did make me laugh because I just agreed with it. I thought, oh God, I am a fit, aren't I? <laughs> anyway, good times. Lovely to speak to you. I'm trying to think of a funny way to cringingly sign off. But the, the, my go-to was going to be something which now I sort of think it through is probably obsequiousness rather than cringe. So let's face it, I can't cringe on demand. Can you go to hashtag cringe on demand? <laughs> 
All right, that'll do us. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. This is wonderful. Thanks, everyone involved in this. Jake Crossland for the log. Um, Nathan Wood for his superb editing skills as ever. And big shout outs to Nathan on an episode coming up where me and my guests spend a lot of time chatting to and addressing Nathan by name. It's going to be an editing nightmare for him. And I insist he leaves almost all of it in, but not all of it. And hence the nightmare. Um, podcast, the music was by uh, Rob Smouten, podcast consultant, remains Peter Dobbing, whether he likes it or not. And you can get in touch at ComComPod. Follow Paul Sinner at Paul Sinner or go to paulsinner.com and you can go to comedianscomedian.com or infinitesofa.com or childlabourpod.com or twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith. Christ, I'm going to... Or comedyinsights.com if you'd like to hear me speak to your business about resilience or authenticity. I've been smashing those lately. They've been fun. So really what we've learned now is that I desperately need one website that makes sense and is easy to organise for me to edit from the back end and yet does not, I'm looking at you Google Sites, insist on putting a shit generic preview whenever anyone mentions it on social media. Right, that'll do. (laughs) 